Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Lexi. And my name's Sam. Joining us today is James Altweiss. Uh, he is the founder of Hopnology and also uh, another Siebel instructor. Uh, Amard Friar is also joining us today. We're going to have a lot of fun with these guys. Specifically, we're going to talk about sensory. We're going to talk about memory. We're going to talk about how we taste things. My favorite thing about that is we're all doing it wrong. That is what I learned. Yeah, we've been doing everything wrong we've been our doing whole lives. Everything wrong. So if you thought anything that you did in life was right, it's wrong. We're gonna, and we're going <laughs> to tell you why. All right, let's dive and get heavy. All right, uh, well, welcome to the show. Yeah, welcome, Thank James. You. And Edmar, welcome as well. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I think today I, we really want to dive into uh, taste and memory, how all these things kind of interact. How and we perceive them. How we, how we perceive Definitely them. Definitely how we perceive them. Yeah. You're all wrong. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> We're all wrong. Oh, man. Everybody's wrong. No. Oh, man. This is horrible. I, I've lived, I've you know lived, how you've been tasting your whole life? It's wrong. Yeah, it's, it's wrong. wrong. Oh no! So I have to put I have to put food in my nose and backwards. Your perceptions of reality are just that's absolutely yeah. right. You've been eating in the wrong hole your whole life. Yep, that's what you're being told. Um, oh man, we're really endorsing illicit activities here. <laughs> cool. Well, let's start. Let's start with the with the basics. Then um, let's talk a little bit about how we perceive these, how we are perceiving flavors and aromas in in beers. I want to start off with like a little bit of an anecdote and how memory and aroma kind of work for me. And that is, uh, when I was about seven or eight years old, I took a trip down to Florida uh, with my folks. And I remember it was like the first time I smelled this like dense humidity mixed with like tropics and really just all of that potpourri of things that you smell when you first get off the off an airplane, <laughs> off an airplane in Fort Myers. Uh -huh. And it was it was really uh, it was memorable at that time. And I, what really brought me back there was the first time I tried Port's uh, anniversary ale there like. I don't even know if they still make it, but a really wonderful double IPA. And that brought me back there immediately. Um, and I think that was the first time I really kind of felt that memory and aroma and flavor kind of work together. Um, I, uh, how, how did that kind of happen for me, James? <laughs> well, that's a great question. And uh, short answer is we don't know. Uh, long professor james answer is you know as humans evolved um we have we have great visual perception uh and that visual acuity uh was you know a critical part of of our survival on you know the african plains or whatever mm -hmm. so especially our our ability to sense motion in our peripheral vision Right? It's not great. We don't have any focus out there, but to be able to sense motion. So those are those are pure survival evolutionary traits um, for vision. That's why we're very, we believe we are very visual species. It's easy to equate things visually. Now for aroma, the sense of smell, that's a little bit different because there are certain things that your that your eyes can't tell you about something that could kill you. 
<laughs> so, uh, and that's usually due to the, you know, the nature of the chemical world. And so our sense of aroma, our sense of smell is our link to those dangerous, potentially dangerous or, you know, uh, potentially uh, pleasant experiences. And so they're linked that sense, uh, uh, sense of smell and aroma science is linked very deep to what I call our lizard brain, our very primordial brain. And, but as a species, we lack the vocabulary uh, in general, certainly the, the English vocabulary to explain what is ultimately an experiential uh, sensation. Whereas vision is a very sort of, I call it binary, right? You see it, it's real, or at least that's what we tell ourselves, right? If you can see it, it exists. Uh, but the the science of aroma and the, your sense of smell doesn't work that way. And the only thing we have to link it to, because we don't have a very developed, what we call olf olfactory lobe, like we have a visual cortex in our brain, is experience and emotion. And uh, actually it's probably not a an accident that it is that way since the olfactory lobes in our brain are very closely uh, fit geographically in our head related to that that section in our brain that processes those core emotions right um mm -hmm. i'll just pitch in real quick just because it's so right when you when you started to talk about uh, yeah it's wrong <laughs> uh i agree with that i think <clears throat> no i think i i spent a lot of time thinking about ways to communicate flavor and experiences and i put um it's it all when you trying to how are you gonna how are you gonna talk about your senses um, of smell of uh, taste the combination of flavor and 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 use one of your one of your your speech to talk about those things it's mm -hmm. uh, also as a human you talk about from a human evolutionary standpoint why are certain concentrations uh, uh, more detectable than others uh, uh, why are certain compounds in lower concentrations more detectable than others take uh, uh 3mbt for example one of the lowest um uh threshold we can expand on what 3mbt is uh if the crowd wants to know and if you guys wanted to explain but that we're talking about parts per trillion you know between mm -hmm. five and 30 parts per trillion that's very low detectable but we encounter and we perceive that uh this compound as being so overwhelming in such a low concentration, why are we programmed to detect certain compounds in in a lower uh, concentration more than others? You know, and then I think I don't think we know the answer to those questions or, or a lot of it. Is that correct? James? Yeah, I think that's fair. And we can only assume because based on the correlations we can make by what we witness. And for instance, humans thresholds for sulfur compounds specifically that that uh, you just mentioned, and, and there's a whole host of others, yeah. um, generally grouped together in things we call thiols or mercaptans, um, which is going to be very, you know, salient to our discussion on all these god-awful hop varieties that are coming out now. <laughs> um, but the, oh, sorry, did I say that out loud? Yeah. I, think that I, I said the loud part quiet and the quiet part loud. Now, um, it, it seems to be... Yeah, so, Part of the it's, industry seems to agree with you, Jay. That's yeah, all I want to uh, say. Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. But but it's that those sulfur compounds that we are super sensitive to, that mm -hmm. are also uh, 
great indicators of dead things. Right. And, and, and I, things that we should stay away from as humans. Definitely. But we uh, put them in our beer, apparently. Yeah. I, I would totally uh, like to jump in and say, I think a lot of this, as you alluded to earlier on, is due to evolutionary traits. When we evolved, we traded off our sense of smell for uh, vision, and that helped us survive and adapt and further grow into the hominins that we are now. And so as an evolutionary trait, sulfur is probably related to dead things, which is what we don't want to be consuming. <laughs> so it makes sense that, um, you know, maybe our senses for other compounds aren't as strong because they aren't potentially deadly to us. Yet, if we consumed a dead animal, uh, it would probably be pretty bad for us. Yeah, it, it doesn't offer any evolutionary advantage, mm -hmm. right, to some of those other other compounds for us to be very sensitive to. Um, and so that's the evolutionary evolutionary bio, biological view of it. You know, we can talk about why, as modern humans, we can't detect those things, and that's much more cellular science kind of baloney. But um, <laughs> the, the the critical thing here is that with some of those compounds, the ones that we're super sensitive to, they are important to our experience of other aroma compounds that without the presence of those mercaptans or thiol sulfur compounds would be a more muted experience. And we find that certainly in the case with hops, where we've got many of the, what is described as tropical fruit or, um, people who have a poor grasp of the English language call it juicy. <laughs> <laughs> last, last time I checked, juicy isn't a flavor. Every, um, everything anyway, is juicy. <laughs> so, but, but it elicits a, an emotion, right? So you get an idea in your head what that means. Uh, but those, those, those molecules, those sulfur thiol molecules, I call them kicker molecules because they, you know, they'll turn it up a notch. They'll make, you know, a pineapple or a mango flavor more tropical fruity. Those because those fruits have generally higher levels of those thiol compounds in them, and they become more and more perceptible the riper and riper and riper those fruits get. So if you're going after tropical for, for hops, that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, on the hop uh, um, note, too, uh, a lot of good things and bad things about those uh, sulfur compounds are that they are volatile. When I say this, uh, things like H2S, uh, it's produced by a lot of lager strains out there. You can scrub that off and uh, uh, with CO2, uh, but also you don't want to lose a lot of those characters if you want to keep your IPA smelling great. So that's another challenge that you have to think about when, when you're picking a hop variety. It's how volatile are the compounds that are coming out of your beer. Yep, absolutely. And in some cases, they may be very, very strong coming out of a pellet or a whole cone, and you don't want that whole thing to smack you in the face. So you put it on the hot side to flash some of that off. It's a the aroma and flavor sensory side of beer is is really a setup of compromises between the mechanics and the biochemistry of the system and the experience. And that's that's the art of brewing is trying to figure out where those balances lie for whatever that experience is that you want your consumer to have. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the, uh, some technology and maybe a little bit about some of the trends that we've seen recently as well that you kind of alluded to earlier. Um, 
we've seen a couple of things develop. One, you were talking of, you had alluded to uh, experience being linked to marketing, being linked mm -hmm. to perceived flavor, um, and another being sort of what we could think of at, or what some call innovation, but is really just maybe even uh, trend seeking. Um, I know there's kind of a lot, there's quite a bit to unpack with this, uh, with this, but um, I don't know, I'd like to hear some perspective and maybe begin where you'd like with all that. Ooh, that's a lot. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's talk about in influencing one's uh, sensory experience. Mm -hmm. And I do this at Siebel on purpose. And it's usually after a long day of lecturing and serious, you know, eyebrow deep science. And we we finally get out to the hop rub. We finally get to do beer stuff. Which is and, a great experience. Might I, oh, might I bet. It's, yes. it's very good. <laughs> and so when we do this and we're, we're, we're doing our hop rubs and I, it's time to, you know, practice everything that, that I preached for the whole day. Um, I'll find, uh, I'll play tricks on some folks. And I'll say, oh, do you really smell, do you, can you really smell whatever, X, Y, Z? Knowing full and well, there's absolutely nothing like that in that hop sample that I'm giving them. It's like, oh yeah, it's really there. You can, I'm like, no, it isn't. It's totally full of shit. I'm teasing you because if you're either lying just to go with the crowd, or I've already influenced what your expectation is of that sample in your hands, just by mentioning it to you. And it's really difficult to, when one is doing a sensory analysis, to separate out what your brain is telling you that you should experience and what you're going to experience. And I, in one of our podcasts, uh, we talked about sensory dysphoria, where, and my my business partner Greg made the made the uh, analogy of when you pick up a, a a mug to take a drink and you think it's milk, but it's actually orange juice, mm -hmm. right? Now you like milk, milk is great. You were, your brain was expecting milk and you like orange juice, orange juice is great. But when you take that drink and your brain was ready for milk and you get orange juice in your mouth, the experience is not pleasant, <laughs> <laughs> right? But there's no chemical change, right? That's all the, that's all the interpretation of the sensory experience that you're getting. Your brain, stupid brain, is telling you something that you think you should experience. So if you get handed a beer that's a triple hazy, some other abomination, and they give it to you, and they're like, this is just full of nothing but mango and bananas and whatever, guess what you're going to experience? You're going to be looking for those things mm -hmm. in that experience. If they hadn't have mentioned that at all, what would your experience have been? Right. I would say, uh, it would, yeah, it'd be a chalk bomb probably, right? Yeah, so it would, yeah, it would taste it'd be like a chalk cool. bomb. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so no, there. that's interesting. It, it comes down to, you know, it's definitely a marketing plan by the breweries and to push this style of beer forward. And, you know, it is highly popular and it sells beer and it moves units for these breweries. And, you no know, doubt. at the end of the day, that is the goal of most breweries is to push out as many units as possible. Um, and I think that is kind of why this specific style that we are focused on right now has blown up is because everyone sees the marketability in it and 
how popular it is. And so you just see this further regression down this hole of how far can we take it? Yeah, turn it up to 11. Right? Mm -hmm. And that's great and everything about, you know, like let, let's give the client what we need. But to me, I think, yeah, it's great from a business standpoint, from a consumer standpoint, but what kind of impact is that? Um, is that um, from a hop grower perspective, you know, uh, what happened to great hop varieties that kind of became unpopular in the last five years? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're still great uh, uh, in my eye, but uh, is it feasible for the hop grower to be uh, trying to catch up with this kind of demand? Uh, every every year they want new hops. Is, is that is that the way is that the way it should be? <laughs> is that how science works? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I can tell you it's it's set up an interesting dynamic in the industry, which is now on the large scale industry, uh, Pacific Northwest uh, and and Germany and and New Zealand really is the the, the giants in, in the space is the way they maintain their market share is by creating proprietary strains, you know, new cultivars that may or may not have a brewing impact. You know, they just sort of shotgun it and they could have, you know, two, three dozen new varieties come out a year with, with just name well, numbers, no names and let the brewing industry decide what it is that they like. And of those two, three dozen, maybe three or four of them, actually get branded and start being produced in any meaningful way. Meanwhile, the breeders who created those varieties contain 100% control of them, thereby edging out any of their potential grower competition. So there's an interesting business dynamic that's going on there. All these sexy hop varieties um, that are, you know, getting great names and they're being marketed directly to consumer is something the industry's never seen before. Mm -hmm. uh, before at least, you know, recent modern times. Would I that mean, be similar to the wine world where the, the grapes are marketed to the final consumer? Is that? Absolutely. Okay. It would absolutely be that way. Um, the interesting difference there though, is that your hop variety is going to change dramatically. That same variety is going to have, can, has the potential to change much more dramatically year over year than a hop or a grape variety does. Uh, but regardless, that idea is still the same is that they're marketing directly to the consumer with these great advertisements and, and marketing campaigns in all the brewery, you know, publications and whatnot, brewers putting labels of hops or names of hops on their labels, or even calling their beer mosaic or whatever, Citra smash your face or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> uh, but the, this whole idea of marketing directly to the consumer and then the consumer going to the brewer saying, this is what we want because why? Because this is what we're told is hip and hot and cool. And then the brewer saying, fine, I'm going to make what sells. And then the, the, the consumer saying, well, I'll make whatever it is. That I make what you are drink, what you make. You get into this vicious cycle where it doesn't seem like anybody's driving the, the bus anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, and yeah. <laughs> do you feel like there's a ceiling for this? Do we eventually run out of flavor compounds and hops? Or does it just all going to eventually fall back on the consumer and how they're perceiving these and what they're told by the breweries? Uh, um, 
consumers are awful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're all hor horrible, and I'm one of them. So we just suck um, because we don't know what we want, and we can't describe what it is that we want, but we know what we like when we find it. Mm -hmm. So how does a brewer follow that? So if a brewer says, I'm just making what people want, let's take hazy New England-style IPAs. So that kind of sub-beer class has taken off because it's appealing to a wide variety of people who, quote, want a beer that doesn't taste like beer. Mm -hmm. Okay, we call those hard seltzers. But anyway, that's a whole other story. <laughs> the, but this idea of, okay, this is appealing to a different segment of my consumer base. How do I... Uh, my last one went over great, so I'm going to make another one because everybody wants something new, but it's still going to be some hazy, juicy something or another. But now I'm going to put, I don't know, banana puree in it. Or now I'm going to, so it's like they found the same, you know, A, I struck A chord and they continue plucking the same chord over and over and over again just by, you know, adding a little something different to it. That's not innovating your marketplace. It is playing to your audience, but I still question if the audience wouldn't also respond in a similar fashion to a different beer style that, you know, has some bandwidth for innovation. Mm -hmm. No, I think we, I think we've, uh, we've looked at this before as far as the modern beer portfolio of a brewery in the sense that uh, historically you would see a good amount of style variation over a calendar year. Mm -hmm. uh, and nowadays we're seeing, uh, although we don't have the, the full runway of looking at 20 years of beer, we're looking at things in a vacuum at this point, but we're looking at three different styles that, that many contemporary breweries take on. Is this, is you have like uh, a double dry hopped thing, you have an adjunct stout of some type or, and a kettle sour with puree and uh, beers become variations of those three things in some ways. And those recipes uh, are really similar for those beers and maybe even across breweries. It's just, there's a different, uh, different brands of hops or different uh, varieties that are a part of the dry hop and they rotate around. Um, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, do you think that uh, brewers are also sub, are subject to this marketing from the hop growers or from uh, groups like BSG or who's selling hops to them as well. So they're caught up in this just as much. Oh, they are. And, and I think, yeah, I mean, we could look at, you could subdivide that out group out pretty, you know, pretty detailed to, to see really where the target for the, the broker is on new varieties. But um, <clears throat> uh, my partner and I refer to them as easy buttons. <laughs> so these easy button hops, they're, they're being bred to have these enormous aroma profiles that strike a chord uh, very strongly, right? They certainly have a, a heavy presence, but they're, they're almost one-dimensional. And that makes it, per, the perception, easy for a brewer to make a big impact in a new beer by just sort of brewing a, a base beer and adding these hops to boom, because of this hops save the beer industry, which is a, I saw a, uh, an article on 
social media a week or so ago that just I lost my damn mind when I saw it because hops did not save the craft beer industry, right? All these new varieties coming out. I think it's that perception is more one of in order to make all I need to do to make a great beer and be popular is to add the next new hop. That completely, I find it insulting (laughs) because (laughs) of the science and the art of tradition in brewing that goes into making a balanced beer, Mm -hmm. something that is, uh, you know, not every beer needs to be an heirloom quality beer to come out of a legacy brew house. Right. But take some damn pride in what you do people. I mean, if, if you are just trying to move skews, I get it. But I, I also have a personal issue with this idea of the, the craft brewer and the craft beer scene being edgy and innovators and counterculture, but yet they're not, they're actually the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. They're following whatever that trend is and refusing to let it die because of the risk that's involved of stepping outside of that trend. Mm-hmm. It's very, very, very well put James. Um, I, uh, can I just make a parenthesis here and just touch, to, touch on, uh, yes. <laughs> dry, dry hopping real quick. I was sure. sitting, I was sitting through one of your lectures this, uh, one, one of the lovely days that we used to be on Halstead. Oh, sure. Right. Um, <laughs> and I say this because, uh, Alexi just touched on double dry hop and I just found out what that is. I'm like, <laughs> no idea. What, what is dry, double dry hop? Is that a new thing? <laughs> well, well, what is that? Uh, I'm hundred percent with you. Beer must taste like beer. And, uh, what you said is it's awesome to hear. Not only agree with it a lot, but it, it's, it's coming from, from a hop guy. So I, I, I really, <laughs> I really like to hear that. Um, but I remember, I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, no, go for it. About 24C, 24C, something like four hours yep. worth of drive hop, you would pretty much extract everything that you need to from the hop. And anything right. past that is, is just not, uh, not worth uh, extracting. Yeah. And uh, at zero degrees Celsius, about 24 hours. So we're talking yep. about, we talk, yeah. So I say I paid attention to the lecture that one day. I wrote well, down, well like, and you I pass. I thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so yeah, so this double dry hop. What a, I'm, I just want to talk about the the, the bad. Uh, not I don't want to classify as being bad, but uh, the the pros and cons of of this enormous amount of hops that we putting post yeah. fermentation. I think it's I think it's a um, misinf- misinformed because we've been, you know, hey, come on, we're Americans. More is better. Um, no, chemistry doesn't work that chemistry doesn't work that way. Um, so what you've got is this whole idea of you've, you've brewed a beer, you've fermented it. Um, now you're going to dry hop it, right? So this idea of ultimately what it is, is a cold extraction. So we're going to get the aroma compounds and some flavor compounds out of the hop without adding bitterness. We're not after the alpha acid complex. So we are using beer. Beer is a great soap, right? It's a great soapy solution. It will solubilize and dissolve, you know, oils and, you know, water loving things equally well. Great. Hops are full of oily goo. We want to get that stuff out. So beer is a great solvent for that. Uh, so the idea is, well, I want to, abs- I want to 
rest this beer on these hops for two weeks because I'm going to get, you know, this whole idea of, you know, taking time to do things and the longer is better and adding more hops at multiple times is better. No, no, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Beer can only absorb so much hop goo. That's it. Mm-hmm. And what we found, and, and that can change a little bit depending on what the what the base malts were and what the actual beer profile is and the, and the gravity and all that kind of stuff. But in general, you know, per barrel of beer, you're only going to get 1.4 to 1.6 pounds of hops per barrel to be able to extract. Anything more than that does nothing. Does absolutely nothing for the beer because there's not enough space or or, you know, let's call it chemical capacity for that beer to extract any more than that. And the time it takes to do that, people say, well, I'm going to let it set for two weeks. Well, the data tells us that, you know, per your, the data you just gave, that at, let's call it room temperature, your extraction is done to four and four to six hours. You're not going to get any more out of the hops that you put in there if you leave it set longer. Actually, the longer you leave it set, the less desirable compounds come out, tannins and polyphenols and things that add to astringency. Um, And if you do it cold, it's about 24 hours, a little more than that. That doesn't mean flavor has developed yet. That means you've done your extraction. Extraction's done. Get rid of the hops. So the idea that you would want to go in and say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to add add these hops. I'm going to leave them set and I'm going to add them again. You're taking the most expensive component of your entire operation (laughs) and you might as well just take two 44 pound bags of pellets, put one in, in, you know, for dry hop and throw the other one in the garbage. So it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense uh, chemically speaking or economically speaking. No, but it, it sure looks great on a label, (laughs) you know, but I just, I, I don't get it. There's the chemistry doesn't support the practice. Mm-hmm. I, I'm i a little naive to where this all began, if you know where it began and <laughs> why it might have began in the first place. Because, I mean, just the economics of it don't make sense, right? I, I, better. I, okay, that's the American way to look at it, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but d- two, there was a point where we wanted less. So when, when did this phase of going from light beer to wanting more again happen in our beer and i think that's probably where our answer lies is somewhere in that zone but it it just doesn't make sense just to put ddh on your label yep well that's what happens when uh a quote-unquote process becomes a brand on its own right true Mm -hmm. true true. absolutely so the whole idea of randalizing a beer at the tap right uh, we're going to, we're going to take this beer and we're going to put an inline strainer of hops or cocoa nibs or something like that. And we're going to push the beer through it right at the tap to give everybody the big burst of flavor for the 2.2 seconds. The beer is in contact with the stuff in that Randall. <laughs> 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 Sorry guys, physical chemistry and the laws of thermodynamics say you're wrong. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Now, if you had a little Randall there and you had beer in it because you haven't poured a pint in 15 or 20 minutes, yeah, whoever gets the first draw off of that sucker is going to get kicked in the face. But everybody else after that, zero impact. Uh, but it sure as hell looks good. 
So I, you see how, why I'm so sarcastic and cynical? Yeah, no, <laughs> and back to the market here real quick. I just, I, I, I don't know the numbers exact, but I find it hard to imagine that the, the majority of the U.S. market still drinking light beers still there if you go out in the country i mean we're here in chicago we're exposed in chicago and we live and breathe the culture of chicago and so in a lot of big cities out there but if you go 20 miles out and you start hitting the farms uh people are drinking you know a good old bush latte you, you know mm -hmm. uh, a good old uh, miller light and that's mm -hmm. that's still the majority so i don't think when you said oh when did that trend change this is just for the niche of the, the yeah. craft the craft brewer and which has been exploring and and that was great it still is great uh in a lot of a lot of ways the the, the in, you know innovative uh, uh ways to make beers that, that the craft brewer, and, and even bringing back ipas were essentially dead that mm -hmm. uh you know if you're talking about the 80s am i correct here uh no, like totally. 80s no, you're right on the money yeah mm -hmm. they're basically dead so home right. brewers were responsible for bringing the ipas back and say hey here you go. Here are the hops. You know, mm -hmm. uh, James, well, he, Stan Grossman when he, when or Ken Grossman when he brought that uh, um, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. You know, when when that released, I think it's he brought that to was it the World Beer Congress? I don't remember. And people were just wanted to crucify the guy because he wrecked their palates, <laughs> right? Because who who in their right mind would put that many hops in beer? And now you know. Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is, is like people are like what? Where's the hops, man? Uh, yeah. So how far we've come? But I was thinking about this not too long ago, about this trend in craft beer and you know the more is better, more is better. And I've seen the hop usage creep up and the ABV creep up right about the same time and at the same slope. I think of just in the marketplace. Um, where you know i can remember even just in the in the mid 90s you know holy crap six and a half percent can't have too many of those mm -hmm. and just last week and i think it was last week in our podcast we talked about two weeks ago was a a sessionable which is one of those words i hate uh <laughs> right along with crushable uh <laughs> sessionable it was a session pale ale at 6.5 percent that's that's uh, not right uh, <laughs> yeah i thought founders uh, set the market four and a half percent on that <laughs> right so you go to new zealand and like i do consulting over there with with um hopper revolution team and we we have afternoon business meetings or you know on the picnic table drinking table beer it's a lovely three two mm -hmm. and you can drink it all afternoon and not get a headache and still get business done mm -hmm. but six and a half percent is ridiculous i don't know yeah, uh, maybe we're in the wrong business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know if it's this because it's such a male-dominated industry, and and it's that's changing. Thank goodness. But, um, but this, uh, from a consumer and a producer standpoint, but this whole idea of you know, same same thing with like hot sauce, right? It's like oh, I can eat the hottest stuff. It's <laughs> machismo. We call it male dump male dominant monkey bullshit mm -hmm. um, of. You know, I can I can take more than you. I like more than you. So we big brew we we brew big beers at ten percent. You know, in double imperial stouts in a sixteen ounce can. Really, nobody needs that. Mm -hmm. You know, give it to me maybe in a six ounce can. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. But the same thing with hops. More is better, right? Bitter. You know, I want to make it. I want to go blind. It's so bitter. Um, 
and I, I just don't get it from a from a a chemistry standpoint, from a sensory standpoint, from a a skill building craftsman craftswomanship standpoint. Doesn't make any damn sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious as to so if we're talking about. Uh, even if we're even if we're looking at small producers that are making a thousand barrels a year or fifteen hundred barrels a year, uh, and the growth of the industry in general over the last ten years, what kind of environmental impact are we looking at uh, when it comes to this type of usage, and where does that catch up in relation to like the maturation of plants that may have been may have been planted five ten years ago to respond to what was happening then? Yeah, that's a that's a super hot topic in the industry, and always, I think, uh, will be for at least for my lifetime. You know, you're looking at a professional grower can bring a a hot plant from transplant to full production in two years. Um, <clears throat> most of the non-traditional hop growers, so those folks not on legacy farms in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., uh, folks that listen to to my podcast. Um, you know, they're lucky to get to a full yield in three to four years. And even then their full yield is maybe half to two thirds of what the PMW gets. Um, in the in the Pacific Northwest, those plants rarely break 10 years old. They're digging them up and replanting them for the next hot variety. So they've got their systems down almost to the point where they can, you know, even in the first year, if they get transplanted early enough, they can have a harvest. So their turnaround's not as as difficult as it might seem. It's expensive. So they're they're doing the the those quick turns on varieties they know they can get still get fifteen or eighteen dollars a pound for. It's certainly not cascade at two dollars and ten cents. Um, but the environmental impact of it, you know, it is really not. Uh, I I shouldn't. Say, I was going to say it's really not a huge deal. It's really not a a big issue from the large scale corporate farming mentality. Uh, but from a long uh, embodied energy standpoint, from what that plant has gone through to get to a yielding point and how long it would be good for, you know, 20, 25 years or so. Yeah, I think there's a price to pay for that just from an embodied energy yeah. standpoint. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I, I remember specifically having this conversation with you about hop varieties and there is I th- I'm pretty sure it's Northern Brewer if not hot, uh, Brewer's Gold that uh, it grows very well yields very well but no one cares I, about is that is that Brewer's Gold or Brewer's Northern? Gold Brewer's Gold my yeah absolute hands down favorite hop to grow um, but no one cares no one cares well, about to it grow anymore. and to and to consume I love mm-hmm. it it's a great hop the issue is is that it takes a lot of skill you know it's not an easy button hop it doesn't smash you in the face it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't reek of pineapple and papaya it is a traditional variety bred from north american wild stock and it is bulletproof to north american diseases which is our biggest issue as hop growers yep. nobody wants it because it's not sexy and i could hit my my second year out this is a decade or more ago just trying varieties i mean we hit over 2000 pounds an acre with that variety having relatively little experience so let's go people uh, brewer's gold uh in <laughs> thinking of you james i don't know if you know this uh but i developed a video game about beer oh and, no uh, yeah, yeah 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 so in the first the first couple levels you play at a hot farm 
And am I uh, the old grumpy guy in it? You're not. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably make. I, I'm. I'm uh, making a second game. There you go. Uh, I should. You should probably get you as an NPC. Uh, yep, exactly. Uh, but <laughs> you're I, doing it wrong. <laughs> you're doing it wrong. Yeah, you catch me. <laughs> I will. I did put a, a hop cone of uh, Brewer's Gold, and it was hop nice. cone, and it's spinning around. Uh, uh, it's one of the items that you have to collect before ending the level. And ass. and it says it says hold it hold to it tight, you know, hold it to it uh -huh. tight. It, this looks very very important. And there's a questionnaire at the end of the game. Like, but I specifically remember remember I I, I wasn't sure 100 sure, but no, no, it's hop uh, Brewer's Gold. So yeah, so. Yep. There's an homage to that conversation in that game that I Awesome. Built. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and Northern Brewer's the granddaughter of Brewer's Gold, so they are related. Um, they don't taste or look anything alike, but um, no, daughter, not granddaughter, daughter of Brewer's Gold. But yeah, that's my favorite hop. Anyway, what are we talking about? <laughs> well, yeah, I actually want to dive into Brewer's Gold. Um, so what style would that hop be? Um, uh good for uh what what kind of styles could you utilize this hop for and what kind of characteristics would it yield in that those styles not of beer IPAs. not That's ipas popular <laughs> right now yeah um it's it's a great hop it's so it's got a heavy herbal character so what does herbal mean to people um you could find notes of um think of leaves on plants right so herbal herbaceous uh like if you ground up just took a fistful of leaves off of your maple tree and ground them up so it's got a very uh herbal herbaceous note to it it's got a considerable amount of spiciness to it and that is both present in spice like you might get out of you know something off your spice shelf so spices like um clove character and oftentimes what people will refer to as in in the parlance in the industry as solvent like but we call it, we call it spicy it's also got a considerable amount of polyphenols and tannins in it so it lends itself to some astringency i call it a rustic hop because it's it's not flashy it's not sexy but man when she is in there you know about it and so it stands up against uh heavier body beers so anything that's going to have a considerable malt bill you wouldn't want to put this in something light like a pilsner um you could put it in a heavier lager uh certainly things like red ales uh brown ales uh stouts porters things like that heavy body beers and it's also a great counterpoint to to sweetness to malt sweetness because it is astringent and it's got that bite to it it kind of cuts through it and helps cleanse the palate cool it's sexy yeah it sounds sexy <laughs> I kinda wanna have, we're talking balanced beer here so so any any brewers who thinks who think you've got it got what it takes uh, in the skill set to to brew good beer then let's uh look at at brewer's goal i like it yeah absolutely uh for your next uh double stout with uh honey and, <laughs> and graham crackers you can yep, uh, sing yep. you can single hop it with uh, brewer's gold right yeah exactly sure <laughs> throw some throw uh, some uh, cake mix in there too while you're in yeah I, uh but was this and uh, to get into uh, a little bit about the the use of adjuncts i remember if we're looking at the era of like extreme beer 2008 2010 
into 11, you had a lot of producers that were seeking to make these flavors be a part of the beer without actually adding those adjuncts. So, um, and they would use those terms in the, in the commercial descriptions of those beers, um, is the is this like uh the the use of adjuncts and arguably even to a certain extent some of the ip ip theft that we see here too is this just uh a natural evolution in some way i know this is uh, a little op-ed but uh is is this an evolution or is this uh where can we turn the corner here i guess is what i'm saying boy i wish i could tell you um (laughs) I've been looking for that horizon a long time. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know when it's going to be. Um, well, what can I've, brewers do? Uh, what can we as uh, insiders in the in the industry, or what can brewers do to uh, actually innovate or mm-hmm. uh, oh, okay. or start to kind of uh, sure. push things back into a conservative direction? Because we know that the market does want. Uh, easy to drink uh, blonde oh, yeah. and brown beers, or and, even you know light lager, pilsner. It's all there. I mean, we've been we've been hearing about uh, the return of pils and lager for mm-hmm. a long time, and it's some it's something that these are the most popular styles of beer. What can what can brewers do with uh, uh, to kind of get back in that direction? Do you feel and innovate? Somebody's got a flinch. We're playing a game of chicken, and I think that. <clears throat> My advice to brewers and some of my friends, uh, believe it or not, yes, I have friends. And yes, <laughs> some of them are brewers. Uh, I tell them, you got to flinch, right? What is it? You've, you've, been, you've become so focused on making your business go, right? Which is important that I think you've lost sight of why you got into this in the first place. So you're no longer that artisan brewer. Now you are a manufacturer. So if that's where you want to be, that's fine. And you'll continue to kick out those, those trendy beers because you understand that skew is going to move and you know what that means to your cash flow and your bottom line. But I think, and I know uh, from a survey that my partner and I did a while back on several hundred brewers, are you happy with what you're making? And the overwhelming, and I'm talking 80 some percent said no they're not happy making the beer that they're making, but they make it because if they don't make it, the people that are looking for those beer styles will go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. That says a lot right there to me. So the question is, how do we get, how do brewers get back to it? I don't know a brewers. There are plenty of them out there that will, would rather be making other styles of beer for sure, but they just don't feel that they can afford to, to step too far away from what's hip because they're going to lose out on that skew sale. So somehow losing their identity. Yep. It's sad. Uh, so I, it, it, there's, again, we got into this predicament with easy buttons and easy button hop varieties in order to make a big impact. But to get away from that, and I, I don't want people to think that tradition and innovation are diametrically opposed. They absolutely are not. Mm-hmm. So we don't all have to try and strive for, you know, a 200 year old brewery in Bavaria. No, we can be innovative, but yet we can also be proud of what it is that we create and ex- uh, share, uh, turn our, turn our craftsmanship into an expose. Uh, 
mm-hmm. instead of trying to make something that is just another sledgehammer and that takes nuance. And it's not just about creating the beer, it's also how one communicates that to the consumer and taking the time to educate their palate because that poor schlep who has a, a, a Kolsch slushy beer <laughs> with you know passion fruit, fruit puree in it and all of a sudden think, wow, I really like Kolsch's. And then they go and have a really well-crafted Kolsch uh, that is beer, they're going to be like, this isn't a Kolsch. <laughs> and that's just heartbreaking to me. Uh, so I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I think it's a long road back and we have to start being proud of what it is that we make and making things that that we want to make and sharing that love with people and educating them instead of just following the trend. Yeah, I agree. And I think part of that does come from a lot of brewers now are stuck where they are because they're just entrenched where they're at. But I think from my perspective, if someone's coming into the brewing scene at this point, it's better to approach the scene small, impact everyone in your local area and educate them on what you're proud to produce and teach them why it's right. And as it grows, grow organically with the people you're reaching instead of trying to push for a style that you know can just push skews because then you're just going to fall into that trap that everyone else is in. Yep, absolutely. And uh, there was a, there was a fantastic brewer in the Fox Valley. Uh, and you know, when he started up, he was just killing it in terms of exhibiting extreme levels of craftsmanship in his beer with traditional styles. Um, and then did a 180 to nothing but slushy milkshake, X, Y's and Z's because it was bringing a much larger and different demographic into his tap room to the point where he just pretty much stopped brewing those other things because it was making him money. Mm -hmm. And I get it as a business owner, that's what you want to do. But to, to have, you know, 10 taps and eight of them be variations on a theme is not a good long-term sustainable business plan. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. And and you talk about the time too. think about and I, I'm going to allude again to the uh, um, wine industry. Think about how many years it took for people to realize differences in grapes, the nuances mm-hmm. of, of, of grapes. And it mm-hmm. appealed to the different public. If we have as in general, a, a similar approach, take the time to build the clientele and and, and don't ho- don't hop on the uh, hype uh, bandwagon just because it's selling, but take the time and it won't get there if you have a long-term vision don't do what everybody's doing you have your identity um it's and that's part of the innovation too it will be i think i think we'll be in a in a much better place as as a whole yeah i give this i give this talk um i think i told you guys to brewers it's called hazy is lazy and (laughs) it's it's not about the fact that you know you're copping out as brewers and just being lazy by making what's trendy. But the que- it's about the question of innovation and balance and balance doesn't have to be boring, right? And I talk about the Fibonacci sequence and what it is that we find pleasing as humans uh, in terms of what is balanced. And I said, guys, stop. I said, back in the eighties, innovating was taking something that already existed and putting a digital clock on it. <laughs> stop doing that with beer. <laughs> That's not innovating. Uh, what does innovation really mean? How can we take a step back and take a page from tradition and a page from what others have done and put our own little spin on it without chasing a trend? 
Mm-hmm. And you just might find there are people out there, consumers that are bored with yet another, you know, hazy double IPA with mango. That's just not it. But in the same stroke, I would also refrain from taking Kolsch and turning into a slushy. But <laughs> I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Or a, uh, a kettle soured hot sauce beer that I saw today on Facebook. Was that the, oh the Buffalo God. Wing one that you saw? Yeah. yeah. Yes, I, I, saw saw I think that went viral. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that <laughs> yeah. went viral. Yeah. No, I think um, the key to happiness and longevity in the industry, as we keep saying, is it's, it is chasing your passion why you initially got into it instead of chasing the money and copping out for i'm not going to say it's easy to produce these beers because there's still a science that goes into it and you know making beer is a science but there's something more about creating a nuanced well-balanced beverage and having if you only have a corner tap but they're all your beers and all 10 are different styles that's something you can be proud of and maybe you're not Mm -hmm. driving in droves of people every weekend but you consistently have regulars, you consistently get to know the people and then those people start bringing people and you end up creating a community that you're more proud of as opposed to just shuffling the crowds in and out. Yeah, I would agree with that. And there's the whole aspect of, you know, the third space and creating a place that's not working, not home that you want to go to. And beer is obviously a, a big part of that in a tap room, but there's so much more to that. Right. And so that, that plays a part as well as, as, you know, you've got your regulars and they're going to come there no matter what, and they're going to drink whatever it is you make because they identify with you and the place. Uh, It's those transient beer drinkers that, you know, one has to become focused with. And I see so many breweries chasing the distribution route, I think because they want to see their six packs in a liquor store or a grocery store somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Why anybody would do that in this day and age, why you'd give up an 80% profit margin for 10%, just for ego just blows my mind. I don't get yeah. it. No, it but. really doesn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's an awful expensive ego trip. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's the only reason one would do that. <laughs> man, oh man. It's, and I don't see that so much anymore nowadays um, where, you know, somebody's going to open a, a, a brewery as a distribution brewery from the get-go. It's usually something they grow into now, certainly mm-hmm. with COVID and, you know, the challenges that it's placed pressure on their tap rooms but um wow we were all over the place in this conversation yeah yeah no we yeah, <laughs> we, 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 we jumped uh, everywhere I, I do like where it went though uh yeah. you know i think we hit everything i wanted to talk about yeah i think i think it is a a good uh a good end cap for this conversation mm-hmm. to uh put forth the notion that a lot of us got into this because we do reject some notions about quick money and instead we're in this because we really enjoy the craftsmanship, whether it's we, whether it's the fact that we enjoy drinking them. I think we all enjoy drinking them right. or whether we make them or whether we find aspects of the science to be uh, the kind of pull in. But uh, the fact is that we're here for the long run. We're not here to make money and just leave. Right. Right. Exactly. Excellent. Yeah, you're um, talking to a farmer. Farmers don't know anything about making money. So uh, <laughs> no. that's a foreign concept. It's yeah. a vocation. <laughs> but it's pride in what you do, right? Absolutely. And that's yep. what matters. Well, I think I'm good. Are you good? Yeah. Like, I really appreciate this conversation. It was very insightful. And um, 
yeah, I wish you all the best and thanks guys, all your future endeavors. And if, um, anyone has any questions, I'm sure they can reach us at our, uh, Instagram handles. Mine is S A M C A N G E. Yours is who the fuck is Alexi. And we are heavy hops. And would you like to do, uh, uh, a final little plug, uh, James? Sure. Yep. Uh, so you can find us on Instagram and Facebook and all the various social media platforms, uh, Hopnology. And uh, that's our, our webpage as well, hopnology.com. And uh, our podcast is The Hopnology Podcast. Uh, any place you, you would find your quality podcast programming. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. Um, no, thank you so much. I, I would post COVID, I would love to have uh, everybody in the same room while we're doing a hop rub with you, uh, yeah. James. Seriously. Well, ho- hopefully shortly we can do that. And that, uh, that would have been great. Can, that would, that would have been great. Give you all a little education. Yeah. Excellent. Well, and then I'll talk about all the bad beer there is. Beautiful. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll look yeah. forward to it. Uh, thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll see you all next week. Yeah. Thanks, Thank you. Bye. Thanks, James and Imar for joining us today. Stick around. Because it's coming to you. On it's Sunday, coming real quick. We're going to double dry hop the shit out of this episode. You're getting a double feature this week. Imard's hanging out with us. We're going to drink a little bit more, and we're going to walk through the sensory of beer and specifically how you can take this experience home and enjoy a beverage in the way that a judge enjoys maybe they don't enjoy maybe not you know you're kind of forced into this role (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) no one really wants to be a judge right yeah they don't yeah in any event you weren't expecting a double dose but you're getting one so get ready we'll see you guys in well three days all right 